0: Okay, for those of you who know me and have talked to me in the past week, you'll know that this week has been a week where my wife and I didn't get much rest. And part of the re- one, well, one of the, the big reasons is because our daughter started waking up in the middle of the night crying. And we're okay letting our kids cry through the night. They'll eventually fall asleep, but we're assuming they would, right? But now that we have two kids, one kid crying usually leads to another kid waking up. And when that happens, that kid gets grumpy, and then the other kid gets grumpy, and then the whole family's grumpy. So we wanted to make sure that she sleeps through the night. And the way that she would wake up is not like, like, ah, good morning, everybody. Oh, is it still 2 in the morning? I didn't know. It wasn't like that. Like, the thing about kids waking up in the middle of the night is we're like, okay, that's normal. People wake up in the middle of the night. But one of the things that really freaks you out is that when the one kid that doesn't speak yet, because she's too young to speak, starts crying, and you're wondering, is she sick? Is she hurt? You know, is she bleeding? Um, is, she, is she constipated? Is she, you know, what's going on with her? Is she just waking up and grumpy, or is she actually – is this a case where we have to take her to the ER? And so my wife and I were like, what are we going to do? You know, Justin's waking up. We've got to make sure that he doesn't wake up. Maybe we, should, we could take her somewhere else and let her cry it out. Or if it's not something that's – something that could be cried out, but it's something that needs proper care. Or maybe, and for those of you who believe in this, maybe she's possessed by, you know, <laughs> Right? whatever fill in the blank right and and so we were like we gotta pray we gotta pray we don't know what it is so we're just gonna have to pray because if you really don't know what it could be it could could be an emergency or it could just be a grumpy baby we just started praying right like oh jesus would you please cure if there's if there's something wrong with her then cure her if not let her fall asleep if not like you're going through the whole list of things it could be and and you know those moments when you pray really hard and nothing happens Okay, yeah, you don't want to hear a pastor say that, but yeah, you know that moment when you pray and you feel like God is silent? Well, the question I want to talk about today is this. What do you do when you feel God is silent? That you've done everything you can, or you you come to the end of yourself, and you're like, "Uh, what am I supposed to do? And you're like, "Um, you know, I don't don't know if my prayers are good enough. Or, uh, you know, um, I try to apply the things I learned at church, but some of those things just don't work for me. What what do you do when God is silent? And so today we're going to be talking about that because that's exactly what's happening in the passage we're looking at. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 9, verse 37. The next day, and in context, Jesus went up this mountain and he was there for overnight. Okay, so for less than 24 hours, Jesus was silent because the people who were there to see him and hear from him and talk to him and have him pray for them, Jesus was absent for a little amount of time. He was gone overnight, and so... This camp of people, they're kind of worried, like, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? So the next day, when they came down from the mountain, Jesus and his crew came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Okay? Next verse. A man in the crown called out, Teacher! That's, he called him Jesus' teacher. I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Now, this is an urgent thing because your only son means that this is the only person that's going to be able to take care of you when you get old and when you're, you could know, no longer work. Uh, that's how the society worked back then. In some ways, it still works like that today, right? Continuing. A spirit seized him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at his mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is, is destroying him. I beg your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Jesus. I know a few verses ago you sent out your disciples two by two to cast out demons, and they did a great job. So when we found them, we went to them, and we asked them to cast out demons, and, well, nothing's happening. There's no good results that came from this. I feel like, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, Jesus. What am I supposed to do? I went to your disciples, they didn't do it. It didn't help. Now, in case you're kind of like, ooh, demon possession, ooh, I'm kind of worried about that. Um, In the Matthew version, in another biography of Jesus, he describes it as epilepsy. So whether if you believe in demon possession or if you just think this is a medical condition that they didn't have a word for back then, um, that's not the point of today's message. So wherever you stand on that, we'll talk about that in a different sermon, okay? But today, let's not have that discussion. Okay, now so this, just imagine you're a dad and you bring up this boy saying like, Jesus, this boy, we did everything we can. I took him to your disciples and they couldn't heal him. Now, what would you imagine Jesus to say you know, happy Jesus, Jesus that's always like, you know, you've seen those drawings, the paintings of Jesus where he's looking into the sun and, like, his hair is flowing and he's wearing the Miss American sash, like, pageant sash, and, you, you know, right, you would expect him to say, oh, come over here. You're here, you know, right, that's not his response, that's not his response, let's take a look at his response, you're like, what happened to him up the mountain, right, <laughs> you unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Bring, just bring him over here. What, what happened to the happy, happy-go-lucky happy Jesus? What, what happened to him? Like, why is he so angry? Like, wouldn't he just say, oh, you're sick? Oh, come over here, right? My disciples couldn't heal him? Oh, just, just bring him over here. I'll deal with it, right? And then, next verse, he says this. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, uh, healed the boy, and gave him back to the father, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. So problem solved. Now everybody's like, hooray! Everyone's like, Jesus, Jesus. Everybody's having, like, everyone's amazed at what just happened. And then Jesus, while everybody's having this big celebration, Jesus kind of says to his disciples, come here, disciples. I want to tell you something. That's the next verse right here. While everyone was marveling at uh, at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. Like, okay, what, 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 what? You're going to tell us how you did it? You know, why we couldn't cast the demons, but you can? Like, you're going to teach the secret? No, what, what is it that you want to tell us, Jesus? The son of man, which is a title for himself, so I am going to be delivered into the hands of men. Basically saying, I'm going to be arrested. So, okay, let's recap the story, okay? This is kind of weird. Jesus comes down the mountain. Father and son comes like, Jesus, my son, I took him to your disciples. They couldn't cast out the demon. Jesus says, you perverse and unbelieving generation. Oh, how much do I have to keep put up with you? I'm going to be gone soon, and what are you going to do when I'm gone, right? And it's like, just bring him over here. Kid falls on the ground. He's like, and he casts out the demon. Everyone's like, hooray! Disciples, come here. I'm so arrested. I'm going I'm to get arrested pretty soon. What is going on in this story? Have you ever been in a conversation where you're talking to somebody, and about halfway through that conversation, you realize that you're talking about something completely different? hey, how are you doing? Is it good? You know, good? And like, hey, do you see that movie? It's like, oh, yeah, I know that movie. And as you're starting to talk about the plot of the movie, you start to realize that is completely the different, like, we're not talking about the same movie anymore. This is what's happening in this story, okay, where Jesus is completely thinking about something that's really important, and everybody else is just looking at the surface level of what's happening. Jesus is thinking about something that's happening underneath the surface while everybody else completely missed the point. So I'm sure the question on your mind is the same question that I have in my mind when I was reading this is what is up with Jesus' response? Why was Jesus so angry? When somebody comes to you and says, would you please heal my son? Your disciples were no good. Would you respond with an angry response? Would you say like, oh, I can't, we have to put up with you. Why was Jesus angry? And if you discover why Jesus is angry in this story, then everything starts to make sense, okay? So we're going to look at that. But the best way to find out why Jesus was angry in the first place is to ask a different question, which is this. Who was Jesus angry with? Who was Jesus angry at? Like, because, okay, so I've read this story before. I read this part of the passage before, like long time ago and probably after that, right? And when somebody were to tell me, like, without looking at the passage cost, can you retell the story and give me the plot points? I could be like, yeah, yeah that, 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 no problem. Okay, so um, boy and father, chaos, goes to disciple, disciple can't heal. Jesus angry at disciples, right? That's, that's what I thought the story was about. But as I was reading it more carefully, I found out that Jesus wasn't angry with the disciples. Let's take a look, okay? So this is, I kind of cut down to so just the important parts. This is the father of the son saying, I begged your disciples to drive it out, and they could not. Okay, so right now the father is speaking. The, the, the father of the boy with epilepsy is talking, right? And then Jesus' response, you... Who is he talking to when he says you? You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the dad. He's angry and frustrated with the dad. Why is he angry with the dad? Well, if you just go back to the verse before, which is next screen. I begged... Your disciples. The word begged in the Greek is the word diomai, which is the word that means pray. Luke, the writer of this book, okay, this story, he used the word diomai many, 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 many times. And for some reason, the translators who translated this in English so we can understand it, this is the only time he trans- that these translators translated that word to begged. Every other time, it's a call for help to God. In this story, the father went to the disciples as if the disciples were God. Said, oh disciples, great disciples, I brought offerings for you. Would you please heal my son? What's happening underneath the layers here is this, okay? Jesus rebuked the father and he said, you generation, so others around him. Jesus rebuked the father and others because they were treating the disciples as idols. And this is the topic that I realized we really haven't talked about this at this church, so we want to talk about idol, uh, idolatry today. The author in this story, Luke, he's hinting and nudging at the reader—that's us—that there's a great price to be paid for idolatry. Even if it comes in the form of disciples, people who are followers of Jesus, and and you're like, God, you know, I've read the Bible before, you know, I know a few things about Greek, I, you know, you know, I'm, I, you know, I, I've been reading the Bible my whole life. Are you sure this passage is about idolatry? I mean, aren't you just kind of digging deep in that the bag and pulling something else? Like, oh, idolatry. Let's talk about that. Like are you sure this passage is about idolatry? And I would say yes, and I hope that I could convince you that it is because Luke is using many, many different types of techniques to get us to understand that this is really about idolatry. Okay, so in order for us to understand this, I have to take you back and give you a context of where Jesus is, what Jesus is doing in this story. So when I say context, I mean we're going all the way back to the Old Testament. Okay, so let's go to this, the Moses story. Yeah, we're going all the way back there to the book of Exodus. And we are going to go back to Luke, so you'll understand. Okay. So for those of you who don't remember the Exodus story, Jesus, uh, Jesus wasn't in the story. <laughs> Moses goes to, to Egypt to pull out the slaves, you know, that, w- that were enslaved in Egypt by Pharaoh. He pulls them out, all these people who, who we now call Jews or J- Israelites. He pulls them out. Okay. And where does he pull them out into? He pulls them out into the desert. Now, what I'm about to explain might be a little complicated and if you don't understand what i'm talking about it's completely my fault okay because this is i'm not doing a good job of explaining it if i lose you so to help me i i I created some visual aids if that's okay i'm just using circles and stuff like that okay so here we go so moses takes goes out into the desert (laughs) and he brings a multitude of people who follow him out into the desert okay are we good so far okay i don't want to lose you so i'm going to take this very slow okay there is a point in the story where People are like, you know, it's great that we left slavery behind us, but we didn't really consider food. Oh, yeah, where are we going to get food, right? And so and st- while he's, uh, he's like praying for food, Moses realizes if we pray for food, we're, we're going to have to ask God because we didn't bring it with us. And not only that, this whole group is so disorganized, we need to find a way to organize it. So next slide. So what Moses does is that by, uh, by his advisors, they split him into groups, like smaller groups, he divides into smaller groups, and then after he prays, this thing called manna comes upon them. And this word, this manna, is most likely a type of bread, like a powdery type of bread. Okay, so that's how they survive: is that they break up into smaller groups and then they pray for manna, and manna comes, and then they eat it. Okay, as they're traveling, they eventually get to a mountain. Next slide. They eventually get to this mountain. We call that Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, depending. They're both the same thing. And when they do that, Jesus picks out three people from the multitude. That's Aaron, uh, uh, Nadab, and Abihu. Those are the three people. You don't have to remember these names. He pulls these three guys out of the group and says, come with me up the mountain as we go and talk to God. So Moses goes all the way to the top of the mountain, while the other three kind of go partially part of the way up, and they stay there. Okay, so, so far so good. Visual aid's helping. Good, okay. And while Moses is up in the mountain, this happens. All of a sudden, there's a big, the word is they use a big smoke or a big cloud that comes, and there's thunder and lightning. Uh, they say that there's a glowing face, that Moses' face starts to glow. Um, they, they say that they hear the voice of God. So those are all these descriptors of what happened at the top of the mountain. And as the story goes, next slide, as that's happening, down at the bottom of the mountain, they start having some type of chaos They start going crazy, okay? And so Moses, hearing about this, comes down with his Ten Commandments, and he looks at him and says, Oh my goodness, what are we going to do about this? Uh, Aaron, Aaron, like, why didn't you do, why didn't you keep order? And they're like, I tried to keep order. It didn't work. Well, okay, Aaron, tell me what happened. And so Aaron tries to explain to Moses what actually happened at the bottom of the mountain. This is what Aaron says. Don't be angry, my Lord. He's talking to Moses. Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. It's like you know you've been gone for a few days, and when you're gone, you know how these people are. Just they just get so desperate. They're just geared. They're just wired to be evil like this. Like, and Aaron, you had nothing to do with it. It's like, oh, me? No, 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 no. This is what happened. Next verse. Um, they said to me, "Make us gods who who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Like, look." it's kind of your fault, Moses. You've been gone for a few days. And when they asked me, like, hey, we need a God that's going to carry us through the rest of the desert, uh, I I was pushed against the wall. I I didn't know what I was supposed to do. So what did I do? This is what I did. Next verse. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Now, the wording here is interesting. He's like, I'm innocent. All I did was I I tossed all these gold pieces into the fire and, oh, just, oh, look at this cow that just popped out of it. He makes it sound like he had nothing to do with it when we know for a fact the earlier verses says that Aaron actually fashioned it and molded it, but in this verse, he's like, it just came out like a cow. (laughs) I know if there was another verse I could insert in here, it would be that Moses rolled his eyes so hard that his eyeballs fell out of his socket, right? (laughs) Right, okay. And so the next day, Moses is like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So this is Moses' action. Moses said to his people, you have committed a great sin. You guys have done something really, really bad. And people are like, what is so bad about a cow? But now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. Like, I need to go back up that mountain and tell God that we're really sorry. He had this amazing plan of taking you guys to the promised land and that you will be the ones that's going to go bless the world, Right? And I have a feeling that he's not happy with you guys, that he might just let you die out here in the desert. So I'm going to go up that mountain, and I'm going to say, I'm so sorry. Is there anything I could do to fix this? That's Moses' plan. So he goes up, back to the Lord, and he said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sins. He's asking God, would you please forgive them? But Moses has a feeling that God's not going to forgive him. Moses doesn't know God in the way that we understand God. That God is quick to forgive, but here Moses doesn't know that. So he's like, but just in case you don't want to forgive, this is what I have planned. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. He says, I know you had this great plan, this, this story that you already wrote. and this story, you're going to take these people into the promised land, and you know, you're going to do all this great stuff, right? He's like, how about this? One day when those history books are written, I'm, my name is going to be on there as the guy who led these people into this great plan that you had. If it's any consolation, would you just cross my name off that list? I would die here in the desert if it means these people could go out and go on with the plan that you had for them. This is the story of the Exodus. So if I were to make a movie of this, which I'm sure many movies have been made about this, right? Yeah, I'm not the first one to make a movie about this. There would be eight plot points that you have to make sure that you hit in this movie. Here are the eight plot points there's a multitude that follows Moses into the desert. They break up into smaller groups. There's a food crisis that's averted by, with a miracle bread. Um, they take three people up the mountain. There's cloud, lightning, glow, uh, glowing face, a voice of God they hear that's up in that mountain. While that's happening down the hill, there's this idolatry thing that's happening, and Aaron could not contain the chaos. Moses scolds the multitude. Ah, how dare you guys do this? I have to go and uh, ask God to forgive. And number eight right here, Moses offers his life, which would, it be, would you let them go on with this plan that you have for them if it means like just, that you, you take my life instead of theirs? Okay, so are you guys following so far with the Moses story? Okay, now let me tell you the story of Luke chapter 9. Okay, so next slide. Jesus, he goes into the wilderness, the desert, and there's a multitude of people who follow him out there. Okay, next slide. Once they're out there, Jesus says, you guys are hungry? I need five feet, 5,000? 5, well then, you guys need to break up into small groups and I'll give you bread that's miraculously provided. Where you guys like, well, what's going on here? Right? Next slide. So he, he, the multitude goes to the bottom of this hill. He takes three of his disciples, as Peter, James, and John, and they go up the hill, right? And they don't, the disciples don't quite make it to the top of the hill because they kind of fall asleep. That's kind of different in the story, right? And while he's up there, Okay, if you look at the descriptions of what happened, next slide, you'll find out that there was a cloud that came, there was lightning, and there's a voice of God, where, and, and there's a glowing face. There's all these descriptions that are used to describe this story. Okay, are you guys following so far? Okay, because if the lights in our dashboard are lighting up right now, that's totally normal right now, okay? Next, meanwhile, this is the part that we read today, there's chaos at the back at camp. The multitude that followed Jesus out into, the, into the desert there's something going on up there, so Jesus and his disciples come back down the mountain, and they realize, you know, like in the Old Testament story, Aaron couldn't keep control of everything. It turns out the disciples couldn't get a handle on the chaos that was happening at the bottom of the mountain. So, if you were to make a story about this, the eight plot points will look like this: the multitude follows Jesus into the desert; he breaks up into small groups. There's a fruit crisis that's averted with the miracle bread, with wonder bread. Um, Takes three people up the mountain. In this case, it's Aaron, um, not Aaron. Sorry, uh, Peter, John, and James. Uh, there's cloud, lightning, glow, voice of God, etc. And then there's idolatry that takes place, and and the disciples cannot contain the chaos. Jesus scolds the group of people. Right in this story, he says, "You know, you, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Why was Jesus angry? Well, he was supposed to be angry because it's supposed to parallel the other story." And, okay, by the way, we're not going to focus too much on this today, but this is interesting information for you if you want to learn more about it. Does Jesus offer up his life at the end of the story? No. He just says, I'm going to be arrested. But what he's really doing is he's nudging the disciples like, hey, guys, I'm going to be arrested. Now, the disciples at this point, they were paying attention to the whole story. They would have been like, you mean you're going to lay your life down? And Jesus is like, ah, oh, you were paying attention. But nobody gets it at this point. So he was kind of nudging to see how, you know, he says, I'm going to be arrested. But that was his way of saying, I'm going to die so that everybody else can live. It's like a foreshadow thing, okay? But anyways, let's go back to number six, okay? So if you were to take this story and make it, put it on a transparency, okay? And you take the Old Testament story and put that on a transparency, and if you overlap it, you'll find out, that what was happening down at the camp, where people were asking the disciples to pray for the sick, the, the possessed, or epileptic child, overlaps perfectly with the golden calf. Does that make sense? I hope I didn't lose anybody. In this this is a very important part. So next slide. When God seems silent, we tend to defy the first sign of hope. This is, what, um, this is what we learned in the Exodus story. This is also what we are learning right now in this Luke chapter nine story. This, so I'll give you an example. So my wife and I, we recently moved in to a new home. We moved in at the end of July. And when we moved in, we we're like worried about everything. We we're like, what if it leaks when it rains? You know, How hot does it get in this house when in the, during the summertime? What if the ceiling caves in? You know, Or um, what if somebody breaks in? Is this a high crime neighborhood? We don't know, right? Um, what if, I don't know, one of these walls has like a Hole that's a dimension to the dark i don't know right whatever you come up with the craziest ideas in your world and, and 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 so one of the first things we did when we moved in was we prayed over the house we're like lord would you please bless this house you know and please don't let it collapse on itself right but after that we kind of looked at each other and said you know we need somebody with a higher caliber prayer life to come into our house and pray for it and so we're like you know pastor so-and-so he's like super spiritual we should have him come over you know, because you're a pastor, but you're not, you know, you're not, you know, not that kind of pastor, you know, you, we need a pastor that prays more than you, so, and I'm like, yeah, we do, so, uh, so we were like, which pastor should we call, and we started making this mental list of pastors we want to invite to our house, and we'll say, hey, come over for dinner, oh, and by the way, can you pray for our house, right, and, uh, you know, but, okay, you guys are laughing and judging me right now, but I know some of you guys think the same way too, right, like, when you're going through something, you're like, I wish I had a pastor in my back pocket, like, like, here's a pastor, Pastor, would you please pray for the situation? Because, you know, when I pray, nothing happens. When you pray, oh man, amazing things happen, right? But that's exactly what's happening to the boy and his child. They're like, ah, uh, 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 there's something going on with my son. Uh, and he goes, and the word they use, the word beg is, I'm going to pray to the disciple to fix my child. When they felt like it was silent, because Jesus was up on the mountain, okay, when they felt like things were silent they looked around and they saw a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and looked at him and said, he is going to be our God. He is the one that's going to bring deliverance to us. And while to us we call that, we, we have a title for that in, Christian, in the Christian circle, we call that prayer requests, right? But, and I'm not saying prayer requests are bad, okay? If you have prayer requests, share them with your friends, have, you know, pray together, right? But we always turn to something that gives us comfort, and that's, and that's what we call idolatry. So for example, if you're going through something right now, and you're like, I just need to find comfort in my life. And then you go online and you find, oh, shopping. Oh, this is great. Oh, my mind is totally off, off this trouble thing now. I'm just going to focus on shopping, right? That becomes our golden calf, right? Or, or maybe it's like, you know, I'm just going to turn on TV. I'm just going to binge watch. it. I'm going to find out if this thing brings me, it sparks joy in my life or not. If not, I'm just going to You know, like, like we all have some advice that we go to. And these are just innocent things, right? Or, you know, I'm just going to listen to sermons online. It could be something spiritual. So it could be something good, too. But instead of turning to God first, but instead we turn to something else that brings us hope at the moment. We have a tendency of turning them into our golden calves. We have a tendency of making them our idols. And this is exactly the story. So disciples are good. They're following Jesus to the best of their abilities. That's fine. But Jesus was annoyed at the fact that they went to the disciples first, and treated them as God rather than waiting for Jesus to come down the mountain and praying to him first. You see, in first read, Luke chapter 9 seems like an innocent story of, oh, you know, I was looking for help, and I had your disciples, and I thought Jesus was scolding the disciples. Disciples, why couldn't you cast out the demons? But if you look at it carefully, it turns out Jesus was scolding the Father and the generations around him that had the same mentality. He's like, this is exactly like the golden calf story. You guys are in danger of idolizing my followers. They're not celebrities. They're people just like you and me. When I was doing youth ministry, and I did it for about 10 years, I remember one of the things I used to tell them is, if you ever come to me and ask me to pray for you, my first question I'm going to ask back at you is, have you prayed about it? And if the answer is no, then, I'm say, I, then I say, then no, I'm not going to pray for you, <laughs> which sounds really mean now that I think about it, right? <laughs> but the whole point here is, it's okay to pray for somebody. But if they're saying, I'm not going to pray because I like it when you pray, that's when Jesus is like, oh, you unbelieving and perverse generation. This is turning exactly into the golden calf story. Now, at this point, some of you are like, okay, this is getting way too religious for me. Idolatry, really, on the list of things that I look at and say, here are the things I need to work on. Is like world peace, you know, all that kind of stuff. You're like, idolatry is not in my top ten list. L- list. I, like this, wh- why are we wasting our time talking about idolatry? And, and like, this is what I don't like about religious things because we talk about things like idolatry, which what I want to know is how to improve my marriage or how do I love my neighbor. Like I, Idolatry, really? Do we have to focus and spend a whole sermon on this? And the answer is yes. Idolatry is very, very important in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's one of the Ten Commandments and it's mentioned over and over and over and over in the Old and New Testament. Why is idolatry such an important idea? This is Why? When you look at the Old Testament and you look at the examples of idolatry, you'll discover with idolatry comes a lot, in most cases, self-destruction. There's a rabbi that I really like, Rabbi Heschel. He he talks about this. So I want you to pay attention to this quote because this is one of my favorite quotes by him. This is what he says about idolatry. Idols are forbidden because there already exists an image of God in this world. It is found in every human being. So in Genesis chapter 1, God created humanity. He took his image, and the word image in the Hebrew also could be translated as statue or idol. The reason why God doesn't want there to be idols, you creating idols of God, is because you already are an image of God. You already are, quote-unquote, a living, moving statue of God. You are a representation of who God is. He's like, I don't want you to create idols because I already did. That's you okay? That's what the rabbi is saying, and it's very biblical what he's saying here. Therefore, there is only one medium in which one may fashion an image of God, and that is the medium of one's life. He's like, you are all images of God. You guys are all idols of God. Next verse. Next verse. Next quote. (laughs) To create an idol is less an insult to God than it is an insult to ourselves, to human dignity, and that is not permitted God does not want everybody to lose value of who they are because the image of God is already inside of you. As images of God, we are given a sacred task to reflect that image in our lives each day. What he's saying here is profound. He says idolatry is not there, because I think the way that we've been taught idolatry is God is getting jealous, right? God is like, but I'm your God. Don't stop looking at that guy like God because I'm God. Like, I'm so insecure, guys, please. No, I'm God. Look at me. I'm, I'm God. No. What this rabbi is saying is interesting. He's saying the reason why God doesn't want you to be a part of idolatrous actions is because he values you so much. When you take your focus off of God and you say, that is my God, and you create an idol, what you're really doing is you're taking the value that God has placed in you and you're transporting it to somewhere else. He says you become less valuable every time you commit idolatry. It's for your sake that God says that he doesn't want you to commit idolatry. The reason why your neighbor has value, even though you disagree on everything, the reason why you think that if a, if a burglar broke into the person's house and the person's life was on danger, it was you know, like, oh, he could be killed, right? Even if you disagree on everything, you still value that person's life. Why? Because you know even though you disagree with that person, you believe that God's image is in that person, that that person is a representation of who God is, and therefore, I need to do everything I can to protect that person. Idolatry at its core gives us reason to protect the people that we, do, we disagree with. If you want to make the world a better place, we have to understand that the people we, we don't see eye to eye, that they too have the image of God, that they too have value. So when we say, oh, um, I, I, I have a problem right now. I, I need to bring this in prayer, and I'm going to pray to the disciple. What we're really saying is, disciples, can you fix this because I can't? What you're saying is, the image of God in me is a lot smaller than the image of God in that person. That's what you're saying, that you're diminishing the value of God inside of your life. That, yeah, I believe that everybody has the image of God, but for me, I have a little less of it than you do. Pastor, can you pray for me? I haven't prayed about it, but can you pray for me? Because, you know, I know when you pray, things happen. What you're really saying is, when it comes to the image of God, I believe that pastor has more of the image of God than I do. and That's why God hears him better than hears me. Here's the point. When we believe God hears another person's prayers clearer than ours, we are diminishing God's image inside of us. Now, let me just be clear because I don't want people to misunderstand what I'm I'm saying here. When you go up to somebody and say, we should please pray with me, that's good. But when you say, I'm not going to pray, you should pray for me, that's the problem. When you think that somebody else's prayers are more effective than yours, that's the problem. If you're a person who's on the prayer team and you're like, you know what? I just want to be praying for this. God just brought somebody in my mind. I'm going to pray for that person. That's good. But when that person you're praying for says, I haven't prayed because I know your prayers are better than mine, that's the problem. So when you go and ask somebody to pray with you, okay, that's not bad. But if you're asking somebody to come and pray with you because you haven't prayed about it yet, that's the problem. When you start thinking somebody else's prayers are stronger than yours, that's the problem that Jesus is talking about here. Because in a way, in order to speak to God. If you're praying to God, right, and you're like, rather than me praying to God, I'm going to talk to this person who's going to pray to God. What you're really doing here is you're saying, that person is a child of God. I'm not. So we'll just let this happen over here, and I'll just be the person that's going to stand to this side. What you're really saying is, I don't think I have the attention of God. I don't think God loves me as much as that person. I don't think I have the image of God in me as much as that person. You're diminishing your own value, by treating that person as an idol. This is why Jesus was angry. He says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, why would you do that to yourself? Now, even after all this, you're kind of like, but yeah, God, you really don't understand. Like, when I pray, nothing happens. <laughs> like, just silence. But when that person prays, like, fire comes from the sky. like." Or, or when that person prays, he's so eloquent. Like, he just knows the right words to say. When I pray, there's a lot of ums, like, uh, God, uh, dear Jesus Lord, what am I supposed to call you again? Uh, Almighty counselor, or is that the Holy Spirit? I can't remember. Oh, I don't know my theology. My theology is so messed up. Uh, you know, I'm going to just stop praying. I'm going to let somebody else pray who understands you better. Like, whatever, wherever you are in your prayer life, God values you and your prayers, not because you have the right words to say. As a matter of fact, there's a verse later on in the New Testament that says, if you don't know what to say, then just say whatever's on your heart and, and the Holy Spirit will, will translate that to God so that it makes more sense. You know, <laughs> But the whole point here is, why is it so hard for us to pray? And I would venture out and just say this, it's probably because you feel like your prayers are ineffective. If you knew that your prayers were effective, then you'd probably pray more. I know that's true for me. And I think that's why we ask other people to pray for us because when they pray, you see results. When you pray, you don't see results. So what are we supposed to do about this? Well, one of my favorite scholars, N.T. Wright, this is what he says about praying in idols and stuff like that. If you want to see the moon, he's like, why are we talking about moons now? No, this is a metaphor. If you want to see the moon, the size of the window you're looking through isn't important. What matters is that it's facing the right direction. Any tiny slit slit in in the wall will do if the moon is that side of the house. So it's like, if you want to look at the moon, it doesn't matter the size of the window as long as it's facing the right direction. It's like, okay, cool, next verse, next quote. A huge window facing the wrong direction will be no good at all. That's what true faith is like. So the point he's trying to make here is, when it comes to prayer, it doesn't matter how small or big your faith is when you pray. It doesn't matter if your words are eloquent or not. What matters is that you're actually praying to God. Next, next part. The smallest prayer to the one true God will produce great things. The most elaborate devotion to a God of your own making or indeed someone else's will be useless, and in some cases, worse. So today, what I had in mind was, okay, this would be a great sermon where I have the prayer team come up and they'll pray for you. And then I realized, that's exactly what I'm saying that we shouldn't do, (laughs) right? (laughs) So I emailed the the prayer team and I told them, like, guys, for this Sunday, I just want you to stay in your seats and just pray for the people that come to mind. So they're not accepting prayer requests today, okay? Because the point I want to make is this, that God values your prayers. God values your prayers. If you want to make a difference in the world... You have to believe that what whatever you lift up to God matters to him. That he's listening. And if he hasn't acted in the way that you wanted him to, maybe he's trying to teach us something here. So in the closing of the sermon, this is what I want to do. This is what we're going to do. We're going to turn off the lights, the worship team is going to come up. And in that time, you're going to pray. You're not going to ask somebody else to pray for you. Even if you feel like your prayers are ineffective. I'm going to give you a few minutes to pray. That's it. If your prayer sounds like this, uh, thank you for providing us day to day to day. Today? Today? Thank you. Um, Bless my food. I don't know. Like, that's okay. Pray that. If there's something I'm pressing on your heart, God, I am so stressed out. I just need some rest. Amen? Like, hey, that's fine. Whatever comes to mind, just pray it. And believe that God is hearing you. And believe that your prayers are just as effective as the most spiritual person you, you have in your life. Like, there's that person in your life that speaks in tongues, and you're like, I could never do that, right? That's why that person, God hears them, because you know, that person's praying in tongues. God hears your English prayers just as clear as, as the tongues that you heard somebody speaking, right? God hears you equally to the person next to you. So lift up your prayers on your own, and that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. Are we okay with that? All right, let me close this in prayer, and then uh, I'll give you a few minutes as the worship team comes up and pray, uh, plays something.